Today on Against the Grain, we're often told that the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians rises out of a unique historical situation. But as my guest today argues, the dispossession of the Palestinians, rather than being exceptional, has strong echoes in other historical dispossessions. I'm Sasha Lilly. I'll speak with Gary Fields about the enclosure of the lands of the English peasantry, Native Americans, and the inhabitants of historic Palestine. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. The history of dispossessing people from their lands is long indeed. But under capitalism, especially as it emerged in England, a particular ideology sprang up to justify seizing the lands of others. That justification, whether applied to the English peasantry or the land of native peoples in colonial America, posited that the land could and should be taken if it were not being cultivated in the right way. And, my guest Gary Field shows, this is the same logic that was used to dispossess the Palestinians of their land in British Mandate Palestine and then with the establishment of the State of Israel, an argument he makes in his book, Enclosure, Palestinian Landscapes in a Historical Mirror, published by UC Press. Fields is Associate Professor of Communication at the University of California, San Diego, and joins me now. Gary, let me start by asking you about the term enclosure, the title of your book, and a key term for understanding the argument that you make. What does the term enclosure mean? I use the term enclosure as kind of the overall theme of the book as a result of a chance encounter I had early in the research, Sasha. I went to interview the mayor of a town in the West Bank called Calkelia. And the mayor of this town, who had been mayor for quite some time, told me a story about what had happened to Calkelia in 2003. Now this, this town gained some notoriety during the early days of the Second Intifada because Calkelia had been completely surrounded by this wall, as Palestinians call it, a concrete wall. There was only a small little en entryway in and out of the town. And he, what he, he told me about of what had happened after the, the construction had been completed, which took about three or four days, uh, he said that all of the entire town was put under curfew. They could not go out of their houses. And when the townspeople came out after four days and they saw what had been done to them, they, they were shocked. And he used what this mayor, whose name was Maruf Zarhan, what he told me is he said, they have enclosed my city. Now, the word enclosed really resonated with me because I had actually done economic history as a minor field during my PhD. And the English enclosures were a phase of early modern history in England, which represented the prelude to the, uh, the agricultural prelude to the Industrial Revolution. And what had happened in England was that the estate owners wanted to regain ownership of the common property on their estates that had been used by tenant farmers for centuries under English common law to graze their animals, to gather uh, foodstuffs like berries, and to hunt small game. And the estate owners, beginning in the late 16th and uh, early 17th century, began to take back that land with the help of parliament. And they, what they did is they enclosed large areas of the English countryside and made those areas into private individual properties that was now off limits to their tenants. When the mayor of Calkelia, Mayor Zarhan, used the term enclosed, I began to think of the situation in Palestine in, in sort of broadly historical terms, kind of like a, a phenomenon that had been ongoing beginning in England 
in terms of constructing exclusionary spaces on the landscape, places where people could and could not be. So I used, I, it, it was at that moment that I began to think of the situation in Palestine as historically analogous to something that had taken place centuries earlier during the English enclosure movement in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. So I used the term enclosure as a way of drawing an historical analogy between Palestine and what had been happening earlier. And really, the idea was planted in my head by Mayor Zarhan of Kalkilian. I began to work with that concept and I began to think of the, the Palestinian situation as something that was not historically unique but had actually echoed, uh, had echoes of something that had taken place in the early modern past. Well, let's talk more uh, and we'll certainly get to Palestine, but let's talk about that parallel, the parallel with the English enclosures when the common land was enclosed by the estate owners. When it happened, how was it justified? It was justified on the basis of something called land improvement. And this was a discourse that had started to emerge in the 16th and 17th centuries in conjunction with the development of the profit-making system, the development of capitalism. And of course, capitalism was the, the, the core idea of capitalism was making a profit, making uh, the economy more uh, rational and efficient. And so the idea of leaving land in, as, as common land to be used as a common resource sort of did not resonate with the spirit, the emerging spirit of capitalism that was beginning to dominate the uh, economic discourse of the time. So that really the, the discourse that began to emerge as the justification was the discourse of improvement. And you see this in England beginning in the 16th and 17th century, that is this pervasive and really dominant idea about making land more productive. And the idea was that if you made, took land out of its common uses and turned them into private individual uses, that the, that the land and the landscape would be more, uh, more efficient, more productively farmed, more intensively farmed. And that was really the justification for the estate owners going on the attack using the political institution of parliament to retake this common land on their estate in the interest of improving it for the health and welfare of the nation. Well, you use the term technologies of force to describe the mechanisms that allow enclosure to take place. In the case of the enclosure in the English countryside, what technologies were used? You mentioned already parliament, so there's obviously one component of it was legal. But tell us about the mechanisms that allowed this to take place. One of the most important mechanisms that allowed this to take place and that I uh, talked about extensively in the book was the mechanism of cartography. And it's no accident that mapping and uh, capitalist development and even nationalism begin to emerge in conjunction with one another beginning in the late 16th century. What, ha what starts to happen is that cartography and especially the uh, mapping of estates, what, what the mapping of estates and uh, called estate mapping, what that begins to uh, enable estate owners to do is that they begin begin to see their land not as not so much as bundles of rights that were written up in texts uh, and bundles of rights that would would be allocated to both landlord and tenant but they began to see their uh, estates in graphic form and when uh, they ordered 
uh, these early map makers to begin to map their uh, tenancies, they began to grasp much more uh, completely how their land was either being used productively or uh, unproductively. So in, in other words, they be what, what mapping did is it enabled and provided estate owners with what John Berger, the art historian, calls called a new way of seeing. Mapping gave estate owners a new way of seeing their land and tenancies, and they began to reimagine their estates uh, as being redrawn uh, with the tenancies removed and those areas kind of consolidated into much larger tenancies that could be farmed with wage labor. So that was one of the most important at what I call technologies that enabled estate owners to see their estates in a new way. That was one technology. Another technology that they used equally, if not more uh, intensively, was the technology of the law itself, in this case, property law. These estate owners used the law, appealed to Parliament as, the, as a way of convincing parliamentarians and the nation that what they were doing was not just self-interested, that is, that this was not just for individual profitable gain, but this was something that would make the nation of England powerful again, because England was involved in rivalries with some of its uh, colonial uh, neighbors like France, the Netherlands, uh, even Spain in the 16th century. They wanted to make England a powerful country. And the way you had to do that was to be able to mobilize the resources of the nation that could support colonial ventures. So you had to have a productive agricultural system. The justification was that if you consolidated the estates, created larger and larger farms that would be farmed by wage labor, agriculture would be more efficient, the nation would be more powerful. And what was the fate of the dispossessed? You just talked about the creation of wage labor. Yeah. How, how did people survive at that point, and how radically were their livelihoods changed? The English enclosures, in, according to many of the uh, actual specialists in this area, the English enclosures was probably the most pervasive socio-economic transformation of the early modern era because it did a couple of things. First of all, it created these large consolidated farms in the countryside that would be farmed much more intensively. And so many of these tenants were either uh, bought out by the estate owners themselves or the, the tenancies were actually what they called ran out. They were, these tenants were run off the estate and essentially turned out much like somebody from uh, a building today might turn out their tenants. And these tenants had nowhere to go. Uh, many of them uh, sort of paradoxically or ironically returned to their estates as wage earners. They were the ones who had farmed these uh, estates for generations as tenants. They returned as wage earners, but of course not as many returned as had been there previously. That was one part of this. A second part of it, of course, and this is a very familiar story, is that the many of these tenants were so-called freed up, as Karl Marx would say. They were freed up and they became the early early battalions of the industrial wage proletariat who migrated into these newly emerging cities, Manchester, Birmingham come, come to mind, and they were the earliest uh, of the new industrial proletarians that of course uh, Engels talks about so vividly in the condition of the working class in England. Most of them, of course, came from the English countryside, and they were dispossessed by the English enclosures. Gary Fields is my guest. We're talking about his book, Enclosure, Palestinian Landscapes in a Historical Mirror, 
I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Gary, your book enclosure looks at the plight of the Palestinians through the lens of the past, and you've just been discussing the enclosures in the English countryside in, starting in the 16th century. But then starting in the early 17th century, something similar, you argue, took place in the New World, in colonial America, to do with the, the dispossession of the Native Americans. Tell us about that process and how was it justified and, and to what degree was the way that it was justified related to how it was justified in the colonial home country of England? What happens in England's overseas colonies is in a way a mirror image of what happens in England itself. Um, it, it, the process simply begins a century later. And really, if you want to focus on a figure who kind of spans both, uh, both England and the Eng England's overseas territories, you can look at the figure of John Locke. Mm -hmm. Now, Locke is generally credited with uh, sort of developing a theory of individual property rights uh, on the basis of improving land, the, the, same, uh, the same logic that I mentioned a little bit earlier. Locke didn't really develop that theory. It was already uh, quite prevalent by the late 16th and early 17th century. But what Locke did is he synthesized the uh, elements in the English common law that were evolving to develop a theory of property rights. He kind of synthesizes it by 1690 in his second treatise of government. But what Locke also uh, and he uses, he of course uses the enclosures as a point of reference, but what Locke also uh, represents is he was a, an official with the Carolina colony. And much of his theory about property rights is written in the, in the fifth chapter of that second treatise, much of his theory about the rights to landed property is written with the example of North America in mind because what the English colonists do is that they bring this logic of land improvement, the idea that one owns land because one puts their labor into improving the piece of ground where the land is located. They bring that same logic to North America. And they use that logic to make a couple of key arguments. They use that logic to claim, first of all, that the Native Americans did not farm their land intense, sufficiently in, or intensively enough to claim a property right over that land. And what the English do is that they use the logic of property, uh, individual rights to land that they had developed during the English enclosures that had entitled estate owners to take over common lands, they use that same logic to argue that Native Americans did not have property rights in the land that they hunted on or migrated from or even at times cultivated because they did not develop a sufficient level of agriculture that would uh, anchor them to the ground in a way that the English planter was anchored. So that they used a similar logic to justify their takeover of Native American land. So what you see in the North American case is the English colonists using the logic of individual rights to land, individual property rights that they had developed during the English enclosures to justify the taking of Native American land. And they be and even John John Winthrop, the colonist from the uh, from Massachusetts in sixteen thirty, suggested that the Native Americans had no had no uh, they had no cattle, they had no uh, fixed housing. They did not uh, cultivate crops in a sufficiently 
uh, regular and intensive way. Therefore, if we, what Winthrop said is if we take the land, but if we leave them a little bit, nobody will be harmed in the process. And the English basically used that logic throughout the 17th and 18th century to progressively dispossess the Native Americans of their land. What role did divine will, i.e. God, play in the justification of the dispossession of the Native Americans in North America? It seems that God always has some role to play in these, <laughs> in these stories. God appears in Locke's chapter on individual rights to land because what Locke does is he references uh, God Almighty in suggesting that what God had intended humans to do was to subdue the earth in, in pursuit of their livelihood and to subdue the, the earth in the most intensive way possible. Uh, and that's how he justified the estate owners taking control of large tracts of the English countryside because the, presumably the estate owners would subdue the earth in a much more rational, efficient, and intensive way than individual small tenant farming would. Now, of course, if God had intended humans in England to subdue the earth, he also intended uh, Englishmen to uh, per uh, pursue that same mi uh, mission as colonists. So that basically what English colonists added to this idea of subduing the earth that Locke had developed in uh, that chapter 5 of the second treatise, what, what uh, God had intended humans to do is to subdue the earth. And therefore, the idea of English colonists subduing North America in the most intensive way was clearly what God had intended. So the English colonists also had a justification for their colonizing mission on the basis of what God had intended humans to do, both in England and in the New World. What were the key mechanisms, technologies of force, to use the phrase that you use in the book, which mechanisms were crucial for the seizure of Native American land in North America? Again, the mechanisms, what I try to argue in the book is that the, not only is the, the justification about improving land consistent throughout all three cases, but the, the technologies of force are also consistent in telling a common story about dispossession and the takeover of large parts of the landscape. What happens in North America is that English colonists begin to map North America in a particular ways. We, we tend to think of maps as mirror images of of land and landscapes, but really uh, what critical geography teaches us about maps is that maps do are not just uh, mirror images of landscapes, they are arguments about the lands. They are projections, not just reflections. And early English map makers in, of uh, North America began to project their ideas about the English take, about, about North America basically being uh, English land. And this, this begins very early, and it begins actually with a couple of key maps, one of them by the uh, explorer John Smith, who was also uh, a very uh, skilled cartographer. S Smith's map of New England, for instance, uses a very, very uh, tried and true technique of mapping to kind of project the idea of a piece of territory as being something imagined. When he maps New England in uh, 1616, he maps it not as it is, not as he sees it, but basically as he imagines it, imagines it and that is as a uh, part of 
England itself. He uh, uses English names on his map. Uh, all of these places that he explored, he he uh, affixes uh, English uh, what's called toponyms to that. Places like uh, Cambridge, places like Sandwich, uh, places that have very familiar English names, so that even that even the, the the title of his map is called New England instead of the uh, Native American name that it was known for at the time. Um, it was uh, certainly not, it was only New England in the eyes of, of New Englanders. So they use maps very effectively to project an image about this territory as belonging to England. And the, the real, the sort of uh, culmination of this really occurs in a, a map uh, that's done by the early uh, 19th century by this uh, cartography cartographer by the name of John Malish, who kind of projects a a, a, a territory that put sort of uninterrupted all the way from the Atlantic to the Pacific, without any mention or even presence of Native Americans on the map at all, so that the the idea, the representation in the map is that this is a, a land un, completely English under English control. They also, just like in England, they use the law very effectively. And what I argue in the book is that there are a couple of very key Supreme Court decisions connected with John Marshall that uh, basically uh, are absolutely critical in uh, sort of as technologies of force and the one that is really most notable is sort of the, the uh, first of all the 1823 Johnson versus McIntosh decision. Uh, this, this is a Supreme Court decision that uh, basically every uh, law student uh, is familiar with these days. And w what Marshall's opinion in Johnson, th and this is a, a decision in 1823, the decision was that in Native Americans had never been owners of their land. They had always been uh, simply tenants in North America. And so it basically removed any kind of notion of Native Americans as owners of the land that they used uh, and which they hunted and where they farmed. So it, it basically changed the status of Native Americans from uh, owners. And the, the colonists actually did treat them as owners at the outset because they couldn't simply remove the Indians. The, the balance of forces were such that they couldn't simply remove them until much later. And so they used the law finally to uh, institutionalize the status of Native Americans essentially as tenants in North America. And that was a, a critical turning point in uh, Indian removal, which occurs seven years later under the uh, President Andrew Jackson. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly, and today I'm speaking with Gary Fields about his book, Enclosure, Palestinian Landscapes in a Historical Mirror. That book is published by UC Press, and you can find a link to it on our website, againstthegrain.org. Gary Fields is professor of communication at UC San Diego, and the book looks at the enclosure of Palestinian land by looking at past enclosures in England in the, starting the 16th century and the Native Americans starting in the 17th century. Let's turn to the question of Palestine and the enclosure that took place and continues to take place there. In the late 19th century, Zionists in Europe set their sights on Palestine and started to migrate to it. How did early Zionists regard historic Palestine? The early Zionist movement in the late 19th century was really motivated by nationalism that had kind of swept uh, the, the European continent and other areas 
and they were really inspired by nationalism and believed that the Jewish people deserved a territorial container of their own. Now, m many of the early Zionists looked at Palestine as a logical choice, but surprisingly enough, not all the early Zionists were completely uh, wedded to the idea that the Zionist movement should seek out some kind of national territorial container in historic Palestine. There were many other possibilities that they were looking at, including Argentina and Uganda. But historic Palestine did offer some advantages in terms of the it, it, the Jewish people believed that they had some historical roots there and that they had some justification for uh, considering that territory to uh, be so, in some ways belonging to the Jewish people. So uh, after, uh, Her after Herzl published the, publishes the Jewish state in 1896, the, the Zionist movement actually went through some debate about whether it sh Palestine was really the, the best possible place to uh, sort of conceive of this project of statehood because m many of the Zionists actually knew that uh, Palestine was inhabited by a, an overwhelmingly, overwhelming majority of people who were non-Jewish. Uh, and so, they, yeah, they, at the initial Zionist congresses, they discussed uh, other alternatives, including Uganda, but they finally uh, settle on Palestine by the early 20th century. And they think of Palestine as uh, one of the advantages they have there is that usually historical national or nationalist movements look at history as some, something that will be the historical inspiration for that movement and the Zionists were no different. They considered Palestine to be uh, something that was very close to their uh, spirit and soul in terms of Jewish history. There was a continuous Jewish presence there. And so Herzl began to imagine and conceive of the Zionist project for state building as a, as a project that would target Palestine for eventual uh, construction of a Jewish state. What, in this case, were the mechanisms that allowed this to happen? Obviously, there's the period leading up to the formation of the State of Israel and then after the State of Israel was founded. The early Zionists had this idea initially that they could perhaps purchase their way to statehood, uh, the, with the idea being that through sufficient uh, numbers of immigrants uh, buying up a sufficient amount of land, that that could be the pathway to eventually creating a Jewish state. Uh, and so the early uh, Jewish settlers, the early Zionist settlers to Palestine in the early 20th century began to purchase tracts of land, mostly from absentee uh, Palestinian landholders, uh, who had Palestinian tenants, by the way. Uh, but the purchases in relative terms were quite small. I mean, the overall um, amount of land that the Zionists managed to purchase, even on, on the eve of statehood, was really, really very, very small. And so the they began to imagine, that they, I mean, the, the Zionist movement uh, sort of paradoxically enough, or not maybe not paradoxically enough, emulated some of the same kinds of phenomena that we associate with the English enclosures and English colonization. They began to, for instance, draw maps of Palestine that uh, projected this territory as a uh, Hebrew national space. They appealed to uh, British uh, mandate, uh, who the, the British mandate authorities who were uh, who took over from the Ottoman authorities in 1917, 
to rename portions of uh, Palestine using Hebrew names. And so they, they begin to, uh, they, they sort of begin to make, uh, to, to put through all of these institutional mechanisms of a parallel state within the uh, protectorate of the British mandate. So that the, uh, the British mandate uh, government from 1917 to 1948 actually sort of acts as a, a kind of, of protector of the Zionist movement creating a set of parallel state institutions like a state developing within a state. Uh, and so they, the, through mapping this territory, uh, they also began to, the, the, what the early Zionists do after they purchase some of these territories, by the way, is that they begin to evict some of the Palestinian tenants on these uh, estates that had been uh, tenants there for generations. And there develops uh, an, a really uh, uh, pervasive enmity between some of the early uh, Zionist colonists of land and some of the tenants that had been displaced in that uh, process. So some of the, and you know, all of course legal, uh, so that the the dispossessions that occur, uh, the early dispossessions are completely, they have a completely legal framework to them, but there's uh, enormous enmity nonetheless. So do you think there is a, a link between the ideas that were used to justify the enclosures in England uh, starting in the 16th century and then to the British colonies in North America starting in the 17th century to dispossess the Native Americans. And then, of course, you have a situation where, of course, the Zionists are motivated by their own ideologies, particular nationalist ideology of Zionism, but this is also taking place in British Mandate Palestine. Can one trace the transmission of a certain set of ideas from place to place, or is the logic more innate than that? What I try to argue in is I try to argue that there is a, a common set of themes in all three of these cases of dispossession. And there is an ideal, there's a, a, a common ideology to all three cases that and this ideology goes back to the English enclosures, suggesting that the improvement of land is, justific is uh, sufficient justification for entitlement and ownership of that land. So that, that logic of land improvement plays out in all three cases because what the Zionists suggest very early when they are colon when they begin to purchase land and they begin to colonize Palestine is that they make references to the fact that the Palestinians on uh, who farmed that landscape base, had basically neglected that land and had not done what God uh, had intended humans to do, which was to subdue the earth. So there's a common ideological justification running through all three of these cases. The Zionists also, they, they use a, a, this, they use this idea of land improvement as pervasively, if not more pervasively, than the, the English estate owners and the English colonists, because they are constantly making reference to the fact that Palestinians are undeserving as owners and stewards of Palestine because they claim that they had let, or the Zionists claim rather, that the Palestinians had left as an essentially barren and neglected landscape. Now, Palestinians, of course, believed that the landscape that they had cultivated in terms of olive and fruit trees was just as bountiful as anything that the Zionists had done. But they, they simply cultivated in a different way. Uh, what I argue also in the book is that in each of these cases, the development of exclusion on the landscape is a common theme. That is, that there, in all three of these cases, whether it be English estate owners, 
English colonists or Zionists. What they attempt to do, and they, they attempt to create a new system of exclusion on that land. And this system of exclusion elevates their status as the rightful and justifiable owner of that land based upon the fact that they believe themselves to be the most capable improvers of that land. So the Zionists use similar, log similar logic. They use similar tools, maps. They use the property law. And they, what they do is a, what, I, what I show in the book is that what they do in creating a Jewish landscape is that they are doing the same thing as estate owners do in creating a landscape of private property and what English colonists do in creating a white landscape of white colonists. This, this theme, this is what enclosing land is about. It's about cordoning off a piece of land, creating a new system of exclusionary use on that space, and justifying that the creation of that exclusionary use and exclusionary system of ownership. Gary Fields is my guest. We're talking about his book, Enclosure, Palestinian Landscapes in a Historical Mirror. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So you have discussed how in each of these cases in the enclosure of the English countryside in the dispossession of the Native Americans in colonial America and then in Palestine, that those who are doing the dispossessing, before they transform the landscape itself, which they do, they transform the landscape of imagination by projecting onto yes. places the names, that kind of aspirational sense of what the place should be rather than what it is. And I wondered what role... Do you think those ideas, that imaginative geography uh, term that you take from Edward Said, what role does that play in this process? I mean, clearly, part of it is harnessing a justification that allows you to seize someone else's land along with the sorts of institutions and mechanisms that are necessary. But to what degree is that aspirational or imaginative projection and justification also meant for the dispossessed side. Because clearly of the three, the dispossession of the Palestinians, particularly as it goes on into the 21st century or through the 21st century, is a highly contested affair outside of the region, in fact, throughout the world. What Edward Said taught all of us, including myself, is that process of colonization, the process of imperial takeover of someone else's land, it, it's not just a material phenomenon. He, he acknowledged that colonization is, in the first instance, something motivated by materialist impulses. He made a, a concession to Marx, of course, in doing that. But he said that the process is much more uh, complicated because what the colonist has to do is that the colonist has to go through a, a, a mental uh, conversion. Uh, the, pro the, the colonist has to reimagine the, the land that they covet somehow and to reimagine themselves as the rightful owners and stewards of the land that they are seeking. Uh, and Said used this in many of his uh, his works. In, I mean, it's a, it's a key uh, element in Orientalism, a uh, key element in his his thinking on colonialism, and his idea as what you term imaginative geography—that is, reimagining landscapes—was very influential to me in writing this book because I, what I saw in all three cases, is these groups with territorial ambitions all reimagining themselves as the rightful owners and stewards of the landscapes they coveted and using similar kinds of justifications to explain why 
it was necessary as, as well as desirable for them to take possession of the landscapes that they were seeking. So I think this is alongside the materialist impulse of simply wanting that land, I think this is a critical step in the whole process of taking possession of someone else's land. So, and indeed, this, and what I argue in the book is that this is a common theme in all three cases. All three of these groups with territorial ambitions, the estate owners, the colonists, and Zionists, all of them had some idea of why they were entitled to the land that they were seeking. And they all used a similar set of instruments to actually pry open those landscapes and to take them from groups already on the land. Now ultimately there's, and, and they, they used these kinds of subtle forms of coercion, and ultimately they are able to use more overt forms of force when necessary. All f the law, for instance, is a technology of force that's ultimately backed by what we call the police power of the state. Uh, and they, all three of these groups ultimately do use overt forms of force in f uh, promoting their objectives. But they use these as a last resort or as, a, as something that is uh, extre extremely uh, outside of the, primary, of, the, of the main contours of everyday life. I mean, the Zionists, of course, use a war in 1947-1949 to ultimately wrest control of the entire uh, area of, Israel, of today's Israel. But they, after they... Uh, settle into Israel, they use very, very uh, coercive, but in a sense, subtle f technologies to actually wrest control of all of the land that Palestinians had managed to, to hold on to after 1948, and they, they managed to, to secure that land as well. So, I, they, and they do this as a, as a way of furthering their imagined vision of what that landscape is and what it should be. Well, let me end by asking you how that vision of what the landscape should be from the dispossessor, how does that shape the way the dispossessed see the struggle over the landscape? Because although you're arguing that the creation of this imagined geography is very forcefully about justifying the process of dispossession and, and making that dispossession right and just. But clearly, for those who are dispossessed, they see it quite differently, and yet their vision may be shaped by that relentless projection of who should own the landscape, why historically it should belong to the dispossessors, why it would be justified for them to have it. Are there conclusions you can draw from how that has shaped how the Palestinians react, have reacted and understood and struggled over understanding their place in this landscape where they're being forced out? Palestinians have their own imagined geography of this landscape, uh, which is quite different from the imagined geography of the Zionists. They believe that they are uh, equally, if not more, entitled to that land. And one thing that is different in the case, in the Palestinian case, is that we see even after a long period of uh, time here, Palestinians are still struggling uh, despite uh, overwhelming odds against them. They have a, a concept which they hold on to, an Arabic word called sumud. And this uh, word sumud means stead steadfast. And the Palestinians, despite this extremely asymmetrical struggle in which they are uh, 
which they are waging, in which the balance of forces, the balance of power, is extraordinarily unequal. They, I, what, what is uh, astonishing to me in all of the trips that I've taken there is that they, they are continuing to try and hold on to what they have, and they will not be pushed aside somewhere else. I think there was a far, there's a farmer in Tul, a, a farming couple in the Palestinian West Bank town of Tulkarim, and the way they described it to me is that they said by planting crops, by farming, and they actually are, uh, the, this couple has actually become very famous in the West Bank as uh, some of the most pioneering organic farmers in all of Palestine. They believe that by planting crops in this new way, by having, pe by uh, establishing this kind of showcase kind of agriculture, by anchoring both themselves and their crops to the ground, that they are remaining sumud, steadfast, to this small piece of territory that they are still holding on to. And I'm amazed at just how pervasive the, the thinking about sumud has been among Palestinians. They still continue to struggle. They still continue to believe that this land will once again uh, be, th that they will recover lands that they have lost. And that they, most of them believe that the land can be shared, that they can share this land uh, just as much with the uh, Zionists as any as, as with any group, and which is also an astonishing thought. Uh, so they are not going to be moved easily, and they are not going to give up easily, and they are continuing to promote this idea that this land is is as much theirs as it is of, of anybody else's. Gary Fields, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I've been speaking with Professor of Communication at UC San Diego, Gary Fields, about his book, Enclosure, Palestinian Landscapes in a Historical Mirror, that's published by UC Press. And you've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. Radio Against.